Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7. First Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the men of Kiriath-Jarim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jarim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beit Kar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Bilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Here I raise my Ebenezer. It's... It's, a, it's an obscure location in the book of Samuel, and yet it has become a part of one of the most famous hymns of the church. Uh, tonight, we're concluding our story of Ebenezer and Ichabod. We saw the, the battle of Ebenezer back in chapter 4, and it's now a different Ebenezer that closes our passage. So there's, there's the, the story of the two Ebenezers is really chapters 4 through 7. And then Ichabod, no glory, well described the condition of Israel when the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive. And yet, Samuel says, till now the Lord has helped us. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. Even when the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive, the Lord was helping us. We didn't see it at the time. 
It looked like a catastrophic failure. It looked like everything was falling apart. But isn't that God's way? Isn't that the way of the cross? We thought he was the one who would have redeemed Israel. That's what they said on the road to Emmaus as they were talking to the risen Jesus. And he's like, let me tell you a story. And he opened their eyes to all the scriptures concerning himself. I mean, if it's all the scriptures, then he included 1 Samuel 4 through 7 and the story of Ebenezer. As we've seen in these chapters, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At the first Ebenezer, the people of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant to Ebenezer because they were seeking God's help. Hitherto, by thy help, we have come. They were asking for God's help. So let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Israel sang those words in 1 Samuel 4. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. We got the ark now, here we're going to battle, and we're going to win because God's with us. And back in chapter 4, it didn't say anything about Israel following other gods. Israel was trusting Yahweh to save them. Would God be a rock of help to them? Would he be their sure fortress? Uh, or not. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Eli understood. He knew as well as you do that God did not physically reside in the tabernacle. But when he hears the news, he heard the news of Israel's defeat. That was disheartening. He heard the news of his son's death. and That was heartbreaking. But Eli could have lived through that. He had already been told by the prophet that God would kill both of his sons in a single day. And then he hears that the ark of God was captured and he falls over and dies. Eli's daughter-in-law understood this as well because when she says Ichabod, naming her son Ichabod, no glory because the glory had departed from Israel for the ark of God had been captured and then she dies. For God to remove the ark from the land is for God to say, you are no longer my people. That's why I say that uh, the, our our evening service parallels nicely because what we're doing in Samuel is what Hosea is going to reflect on. So as Pastor Pinnegar preaches from Hosea, he's going to frequently make references back to what's going on in Samuel. And just because when the Ark of the Covenant is captured, you are not my people. No mercy. And then First Samuel 5 recounted the exile of the Ark of God. Remember, the problem was not that Israel had too high a view of the ark. Israel has too low a view of the ark. We oftentimes think of, of it as, oh, they, they, thought, you know, they thought that the God, you know, God would do something if they brought the ark. <laughs> Actually, that was true. God would do something if they brought the ark. But they misunderstood that the ark is not a magical talisman that you just bring the ark along and it'll do what you want. 
No, the power of the ark is, in fact, the power of the presence of God. Do you really want God to be near? The nearness of God is only a good thing if you have repented of your sin and you have turned to him and you believe in him. For God to draw near to unrepentant, rebellious people, when God draws near to the rebellious, he destroys them. Like what happened when the ark came to the first Ebenezer. But the exile of the ark shows us how powerful this little box was. Because what happened when that Ark of the Covenant went down into the Temple of Dagon? Dagon falls on his face before God. Dagon cannot stand before Yahweh. So when Yahweh's Ark comes into the Temple of Dagon, Dagon falls before Yahweh and says, You are God, I am not. Before anybody else had defeated the Philistines in the book of Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant goes before Israel. God himself goes before his people. And in the gospel according to Samuel, which is the right thing to call it, the good news of the kingdom is that when God himself goes before his people to defeat all his and our enemies, that's where the story starts. The story starts when God works to save his people. And then chapter 6 told us about the resurrection of the ark as he restores the ark to Israel through, um, through the Philistines being <laughs> scattered. And, and this... But, but that's where our story has left us. The ark is at Kiriath-Jarim awaiting the faithful priest that had been prophesied. Samuel, the prophet of, of God, is speaking to the house of Israel. And it's worth noting that while they are waiting on the Lord, they're not just sitting on their hands waiting. You know, like, waiting on the Lord doesn't mean doing nothing. Waiting on the Lord means repenting of your sin. Waiting on the Lord means turning to God. Re waiting on the Lord means trusting him, drawing near to him, and trusting that he will act when his time comes. Now here in chapter 7, there are lots of verbal parallels back to the first Ebenezer in chapter 4. So this, this whole thing about you got to understand the two Ebenezers to understand what's going on. Back in chapter 4, it says that Israel was struck down by the Philistines in chapter 4, verses 2, 3, and 10. Now, in chapter 7, the Philistines are struck down by Israel in verse 10. In chapter 4, the Israelites try manipulation, let the ark save us, verse 3. In chapter 7, notice how they say it, let God save us. Ah, now we're getting it somewhere. In both cases, the Philistines hear what goes on. And the result in chapter 4 is Ichabod, no glory. The glory departs. And the result of chapter 7 is Ebenezer, the stone of help. And the language of, of returning is very much the central theme of our chapter. When Samuel says in verse 3, 
If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, well, there are two parts to this. First, put away the foreign gods. And then second, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Our shorter catechism paraphrases this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. This is what Samuel is saying we should do. Israel has seen the mercy of God in Christ. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God with us, Emmanuel, has gone before them, descending into hell in the temple of Dagon. And so now they see their sin against God. And so they turn away from idols in order to serve the living and true God. And so the people of Israel did, as Samuel said. They put away the, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Uh, Baal and Asherah were the, the male and female deities of the Canaanites. Now, it's worth noting that these are very much the gods of the modern world as well. They go by different names, but it's the same principles. The gods of the ancient world encouraged sexual self-expression. Anybody heard of that in the modern world? The rituals of the pagan temples involved sexual indulgence. You may recall back in chapter 2, Eli's sons were condemned by God. Why? One of the reasons was because they would lay with the women who served in the tabernacle. They are acting as though they are pagan priests at a pagan shrine. They're following the practices of the nations around them at the house of Yahweh. They were acting as though Yahweh was a God like the other gods. And God says to his people, no, turn away from the other gods. I am the Lord, your God. In our own day, we see the return of the ancient gods. Baal and Asherah can be found everywhere on the internet. Our culture has glorified sexual self-expression to the point where, I mean, think about it. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is the world of ancient Canaan. Or modern America. Take your pick. But Samuel says, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Turn away from the gods of the nations and turn your heart to the Lord. Paul paraphrases this in Colossians 3. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. What does Paul mean by earthly things? Well, in Colossians 3, 5, he's very clear what he means by earthly things. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Notice where he starts. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul recognizes that idolatry and sexual immorality are woven together because the gods of the nations will tell you, do whatever feels good. But the one true God says, I am the Lord your God. I made you for myself. And all those things that you're pursuing, all those things that you think will make you happy, how's it working for you? 
How's it working for the nations? How did it work for ancient nations? How does it work for modern nations? It's, it's not. But Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you two once walked when you were living in them. I mean, this is Samuel's message to Israel, but I'm, I'll just use Paul's way of putting it. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is what Samuel is saying in 1 Samuel 7. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Don't let yourself be distracted by the deceptions of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, notice in verse 5 that Samuel recognizes that returning to the Lord also requires a mediator. Because our, our problem is, uh, <laughs> returning to the Lord, how do we get back? How's, how do we get back? The Ark of the Covenant has been sent into exile. Now it's living in a, in a, in a house. There's no, things aren't the way they should be. How do we get back? And Samuel says, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel recognizes that he is the mediator that God has appointed for this time. Psalm 99 expresses this in the psalm that we sang earlier, that you know, Moses and Aaron were God's you know, prophets and priests, and Samuel also spoke in his name. Samuel is the mediator who intercedes with the Lord for the people. And all through the Old Testament, we see the principle of the mediator. The mediator is one who stands in between two others. Old Testament mediators stand between God and the people. Uh, the drawback was they were sinners like the rest of us. But they pointed forward to the one who could stand between God and man because he was truly God and truly man. As Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the one who is able to stand between because he is true God and true man in one person. But notice how Samuel mediates. They gather at Mizpah, and they drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Now, why, why do they draw water and pour it out? Well, water was a precious commodity in Israel. To pour water out on the ground, that's, I mean, think about, think about Ahab, King Ahab, when, when Elijah goes to Mount, Mount, Mount Carmel, and it's, it's in the middle of a drought, and remember what, what Elijah says? Pour water! Pour water! More water! Pour it on the altar! Pour it on the wood! Pour it on everything! Make it all... Water? During a drought? Pour it out? Are you crazy, man? To pour water on the ground is, in one sense, an image of futility. Uh, the wise woman of Tekoa will say later in Second Samuel 14, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Pouring water out on the ground is an image of futility. That It's an image of, you're, it's wasting water. It's, you're wasting the most precious gift that you have in the Middle East. 
but they pour water out on the ground and they fast. They deprive themselves of even the necessary things of life because they acknowledge that the only thing necessary was that we have the presence of God with us. The only thing necessary is the mercy of God, that God would have mercy on us. We have sinned against the Lord. Is that how we see our sin? We often see our sin as, oh, I've, I've sinned against my friend. But as we saw this morning, our sin is against God. We have sinned against the Lord. If the Lord does not have mercy on us, what is the use of food and water? I suspect that we do not fast enough. We are self-indulgent. We are proud. Fasting would be to say that we are in need. And we tend not to think that we're in need. So why would we fast? But if we recognize that we are needy, if we recognize that we have nothing in ourselves, then we need to say, if God does not have mercy upon us, what is the use of bread and water? If you're going to return to the Lord, then you need to start by saying, you, O oh God, are more important than anything else. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of course, when you return to the Lord, your, your, your enemies won't like it. Now, when the Philistines heard, they, they seem to always hear what's going on. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. The world, the flesh, and the devil are arrayed against you. The world refers to those who are opposed to God. Here are the Philistines and the lords of the Philistines. The flesh refers to our own weakness. In this case, the people of Israel were afraid of the Philistines. And the devil refers to the evil one, the accuser of the brethren who is seeking to destroy us. Now, Paul tells us that we need to recognize that our warfare is not physical but spiritual. Satan will use all sorts of weapons against us, but we are called, as Paul says, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And by the way, Samuel would, would agree with that. Samuel says that Old Testament warfare was also primarily spiritual warfare. What does he do? When the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and now that fear is wavering. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They recognize this is spiritual warfare here. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. How can you defeat the Philistines? Offer a burnt offering. That's spiritual warfare. Now notice the difference between the first Ebenezer and the second. In the first Ebenezer, they said, bring the ark so the ark may save us. Now they offer a burnt offering and ask that God may save us. They recognize the problem here 
is not one that we can solve by magical manipulation of God. The problem here is one we can only solve by turning to the Lord himself. And the burnt offering, which is perhaps better translated the ascension offering. The idea here is that, is that the flesh of the animal is transformed by fire into smoke. And that smoke ascends to the Lord as a sweet aroma. The word here it means to draw near. The burnt offering is quite literally an ascent drawing near to God. So when you offer a burnt offering, you are symbolically drawing near to, to God, saying, we are here to worship you. We are here to draw near to you because you alone are the one who can save us. Samuel cried to the Lord in word and in deed. This is what Psalm 99 refers to when it says, Samuel also called to the Lord and he answered. Samuel the prophet spoke to man on behalf of God. Return to the Lord with all your heart. And he spoke to God on behalf of man. He cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. He interceded for the people as a priest offering the sacrifice and as a prophet speaking to the Lord and the Lord heard him. And the Lord thundered forth and routed the Philistines. The same God who went before his people to cast down Dagon, the Philistine God, now thunders from the heavens and threw the Philistine army into confusion. Notice that Israel no longer trusts in manipulation to save them. They're not saying, ah, oh, just bring the Ark of the Covenant. They're walking by faith, trusting in the Lord himself. At the heart of Israel's experience of mercy stands their own helplessness, their own utter lack of resources, which means that prayer is their only resource. You might say prayer and the sacraments, but it's the means of grace. It's, it's what God has given them to do. We get so used to our strategies and techniques and gimmicks. We got all these ways of sol solving problems that we neglect prayer. Like you said well in Sunday school this morning. God may have to remove all of our props for support. For Israel, he took away the Ark of the Covenant. He said, oh, you, th you think that? No, the Ark of the Covenant. I will go before you and defeat your enemies. Trust me. Don't trust the props. Do we really believe that God is able to do what he has promised? I mean, mostly, but he probably needs a little help. So let me, let, me, let, me, let me take care of that part. Do we really believe that God is able to do what he says? Well, then Samuel took a stone. Because, you see, we, we're, we're kind of forgetful. <laughs> we tend to, okay, great. We did it right the first time. Um, yay! Or in this case, the second time. It wasn't the third time. But we did it right, finally. And Samuel's like, okay, guys, let's remember this. So to remember this, here's this stone. Now, we're, we're now miles away from the, the town of Ebenezer where we were defeated twice. So let's set up the stone here and call it Ebenezer so that we remember what happened there and everything in between, how the ark was captured there, 
how Eli and his sons died there, how everything that we had once thought was going to save us didn't save us there, because we now have realized it is the Lord himself who saves us. And so hitherto thy help has brought me. Hitherto thy help, by thy help I'm come. And this is the establishment of Ebenezer, the stone of help. The first Ebenezer was in the coastal plain near the foothills of Ephraim. The second Ebenezer is in Benjamin near Mizpah. The death of the priests and the capture of the ark turns out to be the means that God had used to overthrow the Philistines. He was telling his people that it's through the death of the priest. It's through the descent into hell by the Ark of the Covenant, by the presence of God, by, the, by Emmanuel, God with us. It's by the descent into hell of Emmanuel that God will overthrow the powers of his enemies. Because his purpose is to bring Israel through suffering to glory. So yes, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Ebenezer is a monument, a sign pointing Israel to the faithfulness of God. We need monuments like this. In the middle of, of dark and difficult times, we tend to forget. But Ebenezer is the place where God himself is brought under the power of his foes. Ebenezer is the place where Ichabod is pronounced. No glory. The glory has departed. Ebenezer is the place where the darkness falls and the lights go out. When news comes from Ebenezer, the blind priest falls over backward and dies. The pregnant woman gives birth to a son and dies. And yet... When God himself is brought under the power of the devil, when our Lord Jesus Christ descends into hell, he casts Dagon on his face, binds the strong man, plunders his house, and rescues his people from the bonds of sin and death. And so, even as Samuel sees that Ebenezer turns from Ichabod, no glory, to Kabod, glory, so also the cross. The cross is our Ebenezer. What is the stone of help? The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is the Ebenezer of the gospel. The cross of Jesus Christ, because, and that's why all through the New Testament, the, the apostles will continue to use the cross, both referring to what Jesus did, but then also that we are called to take up our cross. Because... Our cross is conforming us to his cross. We are being conformed to the likeness of our Savior. Now, the, the last three verses talk about the, the ordinary ministry of Samuel. The establishment of Ebenezer was extraordinary, but extraordinary moments by definition are not ordinary. How do you make it through ordinary life? So often we're, we're looking for that extraordinary sign. How do you make it through the ordinary times? Many, for many years, Samuel goes about the ordinary ministry of judging Israel. He has a circuit between Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. 
If you look at a map, this is all clustered at the heart of Ephraim and Manasseh. Gilgal's along the Jordan River. The rest are in the hill country of Ephraim. Samuel may have judged Israel, but he doesn't go very far on this circuit. He builds an altar to the Lord at Ramah in his hometown. Wait, what? He builds an altar? Hadn't God said in Deuteronomy to only build an altar at the central sanctuary, the place where God would choose? What was that place that God had chosen in Samuel's day? Don't spend much time trying to plunder your brain. You won't find it. Because God hadn't said. Shiloh had been the place where God had sent the ark at first. But with the death of Eli and the ark being taken captive and there's no priest to take over and what God had said, he'd raise up a faithful priest. Where's that priest? What's, what's Samuel supposed to do? Wait upon the Lord. Now, waiting on the Lord. Oh, that means that there should be no sacrificing, right? No. God still called them to offer their sacrifices. So what are you supposed to do when God hasn't chosen yet? Oh, but he has chosen. He chose Samuel. He said, Samuel, I have chosen you to bring my word to my people. And Samuel's like, okay, Lord. Samuel will basically be, actually, and we'll see this in the book of Kings with Elijah later, but Samuel will be, in a sense, a walking tabernacle. He's, he is the place where earth and heaven meet, as it were. This is, I mean, this is, I mean, it's what God has called him to be as a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in these last days, God has spoken in his son. Our Lord Jesus himself is the place permanently where earth and heaven meet. That as we come to Jesus, he is the place as he draws us to himself by his word and spirit. He continues to do that work. And yet, it's worth noting that for us, like in the days of Samuel, things are not really as they should be. We are not really as we should be. And so we walk by faith and we do what the Lord Jesus puts in front of us to do. Trusting him that if we draw near to him, believe his promises, that he will show us in the right time what comes next. Lord, have mercy on us and help us to know what comes next. When we need to know, because you are faithful and you will continue to do all your holy will. And though things are not as they should be, and we are not as we should be, yet your son, our Lord Jesus, sits at your right hand, enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords, as our great prophet, priest, and king, the one mediator between God and man who sits at your right hand, ever interceding for us. How we thank you. How we thank you that through his triumph over sin and death, through his conquest of the devil, you have plundered the strong man's house, bringing us out, redeeming the captives, setting free the exiles, that we might be yours, that we might belong to you as your children. Thank you, Father, and have mercy on us and help us as your people to believe your promises and to walk in the faith that is at work in every good deed. Father, have mercy. Have mercy on us in our homes, 
as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as siblings and friends and roommates and have mercy on us in, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, that in each place where you put us, may we draw near to you. May we fear you more than we fear anything else. That we might find our rock and our refuge in you because that we might turn to you, that we might direct our hearts to you and serve you only. And so we pray that you would deliver us out of the hand of the Philistines, that you would deliver us out of the hand of, of our own culture and those who would draw us away from your son, our Lord Jesus. Help us to stand firm and believe what you have said, that we might stand and wait, pouring out our hearts to you, praying without ceasing, seeking your face, that in all situations and all places, we might ever be near to you because you have seated us in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And let us stand together and confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed. Church of Jesus Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.